0: Welcome to Woodland Church. Here is today's message. Well, let's dive into the Word of God this morning. We have started a series called The People of God. Last week, we started in the book of Genesis and uh, Exodus, and I kind of warned us. I said, guys, I'm going to preach for the next For basically, for this series, a style that I normally do not preach on. I normally enjoy doing exegetical preaching, which means we take one simple passage and we kind of stay within that passage. But here we're doing a little bit more topical on who the people of God are. And last week, we looked at how time and time again, when the Lord talks about his people, who the people of God are, he says, they're my people. And we looked at last week, in uh, Exodus 19 on just how the Lord has called us to be His people. And what does that look like? It means we are His. means that we are not ours. It means we belong to Him. And that was kind of the challenge for us last week, that if we are going to be the people of God, we need to be His people. That means our life and everything that we have belongs to Him and to Him alone. Well, this week, We are going to continue into Exodus and we're going to stick with that same passage and we're going to be looking at the next passages down, but we're going to be in Exodus 19. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 19. And before we uh, throw it up there on the screen, I want to remind us of of what is happening here, of the context of what this is written to. So the Israelites, God's people, They were enslaved for 400 years down in Egypt. And now Moses went down there, and all the plagues took place, and God brought them out of that slavery. Well, now they're about three months out, and this is what God says to his people. So please turn with me to Exodus 19, starting in verse 3, and let's stand in honor of God's word this morning. And let's read Exodus 19, 3 through 6. It says this: While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Verse 4: You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5: Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord. Father, come and minister to us, Lord. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Father, challenge us, encourage us in your word today. God, we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys may be seated here. Last week, we focused on verse 4. The Lord brought them to himself. He bore you on eagles' wings, and he's talking to the people here, how he went down there and how he rescued his people out of slavery. And he brought them to himself. This week, I want to focus in on verse 5. And if we can pull that one back up there, I'm going to reread verse 5 to you. It says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. The Lord went down and he rescued them. I've said that many times, but we need to make that crystal clear at what took place in this progression here. The Lord saved his people. He physically went there and rescued them. And since that took place, he says, since I've rescued you, or therefore, he says, I want you to indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. I want to talk about this word real quick, covenant. This is a word that I don't think we use in everyday language. I don't know if you're at the Walmart and you hear people talking about covenants often. I mean, I I mean, have you even said that word in a conversation? Let's just like I mean, James has James, uh, but of course James would because James is studying it, and I like that. But for most people, most people do not use this term covenant, right? Like it's just, it's a word that is a little bit foreign to us. And I want to kind of talk real quick about what this word means today. What is a covenant? To simply put it, it refers to an agreement between the Lord and his people. But it's more than just an agreement on paper. It's not just like, you know, here's a document and this, it's not like, you know, lawyer's papers here. It is a relationship between the Lord and his people. And what you will see over and over throughout Scripture, when covenants come up, there is actually some have kind of argued that there is many covenants throughout. But you see this agreement between the Lord has these promises towards His people, and it requires a response from His people. So the Lord says, "I have all these promises. This is my end of the bargain." And then the Lord requires a response from his people. And what you will see here is that throughout Scripture, the Lord is always faithful and always keeps his promise. His promises, he will never fail. If he says it, it's true. And you can 100% bank on it. That whatever the Lord says and whatever promises he makes will happen. But then there's the man side of it where we would agree to the covenant and we see this throughout all of scripture is that god does this and i have these promises now i expect this from you and here it says it if indeed right away i have done all of these i have rescued you i have saved you i have brought you out of that land on eagle's wings to become my people and then he says therefore if Like, mankind has a role to play in God's covenants. And I bring this up here because I think that it's really important for us to understand that. That there is, God's got a plan. His plan never fails. His word is never wrong. It always happens regardless of us. But he offers this and he says, listen, I'm going to do this, but you got to do this. And we know that this is a relationship. You guys have all grown up in church. Many of you have and have probably heard about Christianity. And the famous line within Christianity, while it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Right? Like, you know, people have said that time and time again. Well, it's true. Within God's covenant, it's not just a legal document. It's a relationship. And we all know what relationships have to look like. Relationships have to be two-sided. Have you guys ever been in a one-sided relationship? You guys probably have. Maybe you had a friend. Have you ever had a friend that you always had to call? Am I the only one? Am I just the annoying friend and no one has ever told me? <laughs> I very well could be. Like I'm. But relationships take two people. Two people to be involved. Two people to be active. It's not just one-sided all the time. We know that those things never work out. Marriages, they don't work if it's just one-sided. If it's just one person putting in all the effort, all the focus, holding up their end of the agreement, no. But it is a relationship, and it's saying, Lord, we agree to you. Another way to put it is to say both parties need to be engaged. You can't have one out in left field and expect it to work out. And that is like the covenant with the Lord. Both parties need to be active. And I need to reiterate this once again because this is such a vital truth. The Lord did all the work for his people. The Israelites did not rescue themselves. They did not save themselves from the Egyptians. Moses tried when he was younger. Moses thought, I could do something here. And he goes out and he kills a man. But the Lord does all the work. And it says, if you will indeed obey my voice. The role of the people is obedience. That if we're going to be his people, his role to us, when he, he does all of the rescuing, he does all of the work, and he says, what I expect from you is for you to obey my voice. Now, some of you who have studied Old Testament history, you might be thinking, okay, pastor, you mentioned covenant, but isn't there like a new covenant? And, and like, this is part of the old covenant. So really this old covenant doesn't really matter. Like say, like, we don't really have to listen to these words here. We don't really have to be obedient to what his word says, because that's part of the old covenant. And some people have made that argument. Well, let me fast forward to the New Testament. And I'm going to read some verses to us this morning. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. First Peter 1, 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Obedient children. First John 5, 3. For it is the love of God that we keep his Commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Luke 11:28. But He said, "Blessed rather are those." This is Jesus speaking, "Who hear the words of God, and keep it." I love how Luke puts it in Luke 6. And we're going to turn there. And we actually looked at these verses out of Matthew not that long ago. Luke 6:46 says this: "Why do you call me Lord, Lord?" And do not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show them what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood came, the stream broke against it, and that house could not shake it because it had been well built. Verse 49, but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on a ground without a foundation. And when the streams broke against it immediately it fell and it ruined of that house was great. Jesus says, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I tell you to do?" We see this over and over within scripture that the call for his people is obedience to him. Now, I must point something out. Because there is a, trans- a, like, uh, a progress here. God calls us to be his people. We have to understand that truth first. You're not your own people. You don't, you don't get to do whatever you desire to do. It's not your plans and your will. It's his plans and his will. We have to first understand that truth first. We are his people. Because when we understand that we are his people, the rest of this makes perfect sense. If we're going to be his people... He calls us to be obedient to him. Now, the amazing thing about God is you don't have to be his people. He doesn't force you at gunpoint to be his people. He chose chose you. He loves you. He desires for you to be his people. But guys, he gave you a will. And your will, if you want it to be disobedient will and never submit to him, That's on you. But he has called you to be his people. And if we're going to be his people, then we're going to be obedient to him. I bring this up today because this has been a real challenge that I think we as believers really have to understand. Obedience to the Lord is throughout all of Scripture. I've called you by name, and I expect you to be obedient. But have you ever noticed in your life that obedience to the Lord is like really hard? Like, I mean, for those of you who have been maybe following Christ for 40 years, 50 years, maybe even five years or one year, have you ever realized how difficult being obedient to the Lord is? Like, like, really, really difficult. Like, like, I can't even explain how difficult it is to actually be obedient to him. Like, I've been following him for 20 years, and I feel like every single day I recognize my disobedience. Like, I see it. Like, I'm like, I fail. I messed up again. Lord, I am never perfectly obedient to you. It's just like struggle within mankind. And, and maybe some of you are probably sitting there thinking, well, I don't have those struggles. Um, if you're still breathing and you're still living on this side of heaven, you have this struggle. It, 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 it doesn't disappear on this side of heaven. Like you're, you're not perfect. You're not, you're not walking perfect obedience every single day. Like you mess up. You have bad thoughts. You slip up. You screw up. Now I bring this up because as I think about our nature, our nature is disobedience. Have you ever raised kids? Do you have, do you have to teach a kid to misbehave? I mean, like I mean, just like think about that. Like, so, like I've got three. I've never had to teach Gloria Jean to punch her brother. Never. I've never had to teach her that one. I've never had to teach her to be disobedient to her parents. I've never had to teach them any of their disobedience. They're hitting, they're screaming, they're fighting with one another. It's natural. It is literally within them a sinful nature. And that's ultimately what scripture teaches us, is that we have a sinful nature, that like within the human race is disobedience to God. Started with Adam and Eve, and it has never stopped. It drives me nuts people when I hear people say oh but they're a good person. You have no idea like just like within my biblical framework and what scripture teaches there's no one good. Like like you may think well they have done some good things but like our world and our society truly believes right now that mankind is good. And that if we can just get enough good people doing good things, then society becomes good. And we can trust in mankind. If you've ever read a history book, and I mean any history book, you will see what happens with mankind. It doesn't matter. Like mankind, it will play out. It will play out of evil and death and suffering. Like when mankind is at the helm, it's never good. And within our world right now, we have this thought that, well, if man can just, like, if we can just get some good people, if we just have this goodness going on, we can live in this, like, utopia of fairness and all this. It's a complete lie, like, because of our nature. Like, when our nature comes out, which it does all the time, it's evil. It wants power. It craves authority, and it will do anything to keep it. Like, but, but our world is like, well, if we're all just good people. But we have to really understand, people, that our nature is disobedient to the Lord. That is our very nature of who we are. You don't be born like, just like, well, I'm born just really, really good. I love how Paul wrestles with this in Romans 7. If you've never read Romans 7, it's a fascinating chapter. Paul in Romans 7 says this. This is Romans 7, starting in verse 18. He says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I want, I do not want. These are word tongue ties here. It's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. It's a little bit confusing. There's a little bit of back and forth. But Paul understands this central truth. There is nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. He understands this. And then he goes on and he goes, the things I want to do, the things that I know that I should do, I can't even do them. I don't do them. Because there's evil like right there with me. And we see this like within him, there is a battle going on. That there is the flesh and the spirit of God at work within him. And there's just this constant struggle. I want to do what is right but I fail. I want to, I want to be obedient to you, Lord, but I screw up. And it's, it's this battle within us. And he continues on in verse 21. He says this, so I find it to be a law when I want to do right. Evil lies close at hand. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God. In my inner being, but I see in my member another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my member. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I want to look at verse 22 here because I think there is a secret to this obedience to the Lord. In verse 22, He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I want you just to kind of think about that statement. Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Do we believe that statement for ourselves? Do we delight in the law of God in our inner being? is our inner being desiring the lord within you really like think about this do you desire to the core of who you are the lord do you delight in him is within you does everything crave the lord Paul has this desire within him. You could say this passion. I delight in the law of the Lord. So he desires God. But he also recognizes that he still has a flesh. He recognizes that there's still sin within his life that creeps up, that comes out. He doesn't always walk in perfect obedience to him, but to the core of who he is, is his desire for the Lord. But pastor, we just read all these verses about being obedient. And I'm not always obedient. And it's true. Guys, you will fail. You will fail probably at one o'clock today. Maybe even earlier. You might even be failing right now. Who knows? But we don't always live up to the perfect standard that God has. God calls us to live out this standard, but God also knows that mankind was going to fail. He also knows that you're not going to do it. You're going to mess up. Even King David, who was a man after God's own heart, which we could spend a whole service talking about that little statement. Even King David, the man who just desired the Lord, failed. And he failed miserably. I mean, if you've never read that story, that's horrendous. Killed a man, got, got his wife pregnant. Like, just like just the, the entire story is like just a disaster fall. And it was David. And I share this with us, guys, because we will fail. And we do fail. And I don't think that God desires for you and I to wake up every single day beating ourselves up over our failures. Martin Luther, I love studying the old reformers of the 15 and 1600s. Martin Luther, his story is pretty amazing. Martin Luther, he was uh, a priest and he was a theologian. He was a pastor. He did all of this. But Martin Luther, early in his faith, he had a deep struggle. He could not get over the fact that he still sinned. He would wake up in the morning desiring to be perfectly obedient to the Lord that day and he would fail. And Luther would like beat himself up. It was actually so bad that underneath his robe, he would tie this thing around him that would make his leg bleed. He would actually self-harm himself because he desired to be obedient. And he thought that he should pay the punishment on himself. He could not understand this idea of forgiveness And this idea that the very essence of who Christ is and what Christ has done was to forgive him of all of his sins. His past sins, his present sins, and his future sins. He couldn't comprehend it, and he really, really struggled. And it wasn't until he really came across Romans 1, 16, and 17, and I recommend you reading that. He realized that there is grace, that there is forgiveness, and that he can't do it on his own. And I think for us, church, we need to realize that as well. Like the whole idea of the gospel is we don't measure up, right? I mean, like, the whole gospel message is that we're sinful human beings, and God came to rescue his people. I find it a little bit interesting that Exodus and the story of Christ are extremely similar. God came to rescue his people. I want to read a story out of Luke 7, and I want to read the entire story because I see, once again, this is like the essence of what God desires from us. And you've probably read this story. It's a story about a sinful woman. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined At the table. This is Jesus. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. You can probably visualize that picture. Jesus is sitting there. He's at this party. It would be a little bit awkward, I will say. A woman comes in who is weeping, anoints Jesus' feet. She's kissing his feet. She's loving Jesus. She's wiping it with her hair. And she's just weeping at the feet of Jesus. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have had known. He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answer, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed five hundred. In the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We get this beautiful story here, and you've probably read this story. We get this story of a woman who absolutely recognizes her sinfulness she absolutely recognizes her need. And she had probably heard about Jesus and maybe seen some of the miracles, and when she found out where she was, she went and she weeps at his feet. You see her giving, it's just purely praise and adoration, and you see her need for Christ. Then there's the religious folks. They don't have a need. They look at her and they say, if he only knew who she was if 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 they only knew if he only knew about all of her sinfulness and it's like they're completely oblivious to their own sin they're completely oblivious to their need for who jesus is they think that they're good they don't understand their sinfulness and their unrighteousness and jesus takes this woman and calls out the religious folks and says ever since i've i've been here she's been she's been weeping at my feet and wiping them with her hair and she's anointed me and then he says this little line that i love so much for she has sinned much and she loves much those who have been forgiven of little love little and it's not that her sin was so much greater than the pharisees it's that she could recognize her need Think about that. The Pharisees sin, they have their own issues going on, their pride and their arrogance and everything that they're standing on. They have their own sin, but they don't recognize it. They think that they're good. They think that they're good people. But this woman recognizes her sin. And I think for us, church, we need to to realize that in this idea of obedience to God because I see this correlation within Scripture you and I will never be perfectly obedient. You will fall short. Paul realizes that. Every book of the Bible is somebody falling short big time. But in our falling short, in our own sin, we need to recognize our need for Christ. Like that's the amazing story of Jesus, right? It's the story that churches need to be proclaiming from the time he died until now is that like, the whole gospel message is mankind needs Christ. And I want to encourage you in that this morning, church, because I know there are some people in here that really struggle within their own sin, and they sometimes feel unworthy of who God is. And it's true. None of us in this room are worthy of Christ. We don't deserve him at all. There is nothing good within us that is within our flesh, but out of his love out of his mercy and out of his grace, he comes to forgive sinners. And I want us to really realize that. He comes to forgive us. And our obedience to him, I believe, is our desire for him. This woman's desire was for Christ. Just desired. Paul's desire was for Jesus. Was Paul perfect? No, no. But in his inner being, his desire was for Christ. And I want to challenge us this morning, church. Our desire has to be for Christ. And maybe you might be sitting there saying, well, I don't really have a great desire for him. I kind of wake up every day and I kind of do whatever I want to do when I go to work and I can just kind of think about that and I don't really think about him. I would honestly ask and say, get on your knees today this morning, afterwards, and say, Lord, I want a desire. I want a fire. I want a passion for you and for you alone. I believe that is our greatest obedience. Not that we will always be perfectly good and just, you know, like never sin and never mess up, but but our heart's desire needs to be for Christ. That's the greatest call and the greatest obedience God calls for us. He already knows you're going to screw up. He already knows your past sin, your current sin. He already knows all of that and he has covered it by his blood. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward and I'm going to ask for you guys to grab your communion elements this morning. I wanted to finish today's message, taking communion together, because I think this is the the greatest example. I don't just think, I know. This is the example of what Christ has done for us. Now, if you are new to our church today, you do not need to be a member of this church to take communion. But communion is a time for us to remember what Christ has done for us. You guys probably already know this. There is two elements in your hand right now. The bread and the juice. The bread represents Jesus' body that was beaten in our place. We don't deserve it. We should have been on that cross. But God, who loves to rescue his people, came to die for sinners like us. And then the second element, which I think is absolutely glorious, it represents his blood. Which, guess what? What? Covers our sin, all of our sins, our past sins, our current sins, our future sins. It covers our sins. And the Bible calls us to have faith in Christ. And if you have faith in Christ today, and if you're looking to that cross and saying, Jesus, I trust in you. God, I recognize I can't, I can't earn anything. God, I'm leaning and I'm trusting in your son, Jesus today. That's what communion is all about. And I want us to take it together today. So I hope you guys were able to open this. We do apologize. It's, it's kind of a hassle. But I want you to take the bread and I want to pray for us and then we can take it together and then I want to pray again and then we can take the juice. But let us pray. Father, God, we give you all the praise and all the glory. Lord, we have sinned. Lord, you know all of our shortcomings. Father, I pray, Lord, that right now, Lord, as we look to your son, Father, help us. Help us, Lord, for your son to be our greatest desire. And God, we just thank you and we praise you for how you sent your son to the cross for us. Father, we thank you that He stood in our place. And we give you praise, Lord, now. Church, let's take his body together. And Father, as we hold this juice in our hands this morning, Father, we praise you for your forgiveness and for your grace upon our lives. Father, we, we can't earn anything when it comes to your standard of righteousness, Lord. But Father, we once again, we look to your son and we remember what he has done for us. Father, how how his blood covers our sins. And Father, we give you praise today for how you love us and how you cover all of our unrighteousness. Church, let's take the juice together.